Good morning, everyone. For those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor David, the pastor of evangelism and discipleship here at Sandwich Church. And I am so excited to be with you this morning. I'm so excited to open God's word together. And as we dive into this text, this John chapter 6 text, I just want to start by providing some context for us. So Jesus has just performed one of his greatest miracles in scripture. With just a few fish and loaves of bread, he has fed thousands. By the way, this is one of the only miracles that is recorded in all four of the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all write about this miracle. And I don't know about you, but I've heard many sermons on this passage. We heard one just last week from Pastor Heather, a great word. Now, uh, I'm not sure, however, that I've heard any sermons about what happens next. So let's pick up the story in verse 14 to see what happens right after this miracle. It says this, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, indeed, this is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So what's going on here? Well, if you read the Gospels, you'll notice something. Much of what Jesus does is strangely similar to another well-known Bible character, a man by the name of Moses. Moses is the one who leads the people out of Egypt in the Old Testament. And this story, this Exodus story, remember, it's the main event of the entire Old Testament. In some ways, Jesus does very similar things to Moses. And in John chapter 6, he does a miracle where he feeds a large group of people. It's very similar to the miracle of manna, the manna that God provides in the Exodus. And remember, Jesus is feeding Jewish people who knew their Old Testaments very well. And when they see that they've been fed supernaturally, they make an assumption that Jesus is like Moses and that he has come to take Israel out of physical bondage. And after this miracle, there is a mad rush to take Jesus and make him king by force. Now we're told somehow in the midst of the chaos and confusion that Jesus slips away and no one can find him. No one can find him. So let me ask you a question. Have you ever wondered why Jesus, the true king of kings, walks away from being made king by the people of Israel? I mean, why doesn't he just go with it? This is his moment where he can be made king. And not only does he not receive it, but he actually runs away. And the disciples, they were sort of used to this behavior by Jesus. It tells us throughout the scriptures that Jesus would often slip away in prayer. So that part wasn't strange. But to slip off at this very pivotal moment in his ministry it must have seemed so strange and confusing to them. Remember, they think this is why Jesus came. He's come to physically free the people. And that's what they've been telling everyone, that Jesus is special. And finally, the crowds are they're catching on. 
And this is Jesus' big moment. And what happens? He runs away. Talk about embarrassing. And the Bible says the disciples, they waited. They waited for Jesus to come back because they still think he's going to make some grand entrance. But he never shows. And the next thing you know, they're rowing across the Sea of Galilee, presumably toward home, completely defeated. When a storm comes up, and there's Jesus, just doing his old Jesus thing, walking there on water, and there he is. And if I'm the disciples in that moment, looking at Jesus walking on water, I'm thinking to myself, why didn't you do this a few hours ago when those thousands of people were watching? Now, as you read the Gospels, you get a sense that everything Jesus does is very deliberate. He doesn't do anything on accident. And nowhere is that more true than in this story. So the question is, why? Why? What's the point? Why does Jesus walk away? And how does it relate to us today? So that's what we're going to take the next few minutes to talk about. And what we're going to see specifically in this passage is that we all have a king that we want. We all have a king that we want. But we also all have a king that we need. And they aren't always the same thing. So let's take a look at this idea that we all have a king that we want. Starting in verse 14 again, it says this. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So the key phrase in these verses comes from what the people say. Notice what they say. They say, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. I love how the New Living Translation puts it. It says this, surely he is the prophet that we have been expecting. So this statement, it deems a question. What type of king were these people in the first century in Galilee expecting? Well, I think we can get an idea of what they were expecting by looking at the, what the disciples were expecting. These men were from Galilee. And after the resurrection, the disciples, they come to Jesus and they ask him a simple question that really reveals what they were looking for. They ask, will you restore the kingdom of Israel at this time? In other words, Jesus, are you going to kick out the Romans? And are you going to get our nation out of this horrible mess? You see, the disciples and the people of Galilee, they were expecting a political leader. They were expecting an earthly king, a kind of Moses or David, only better. And the loaves and fishes, they were just the beginning of his reign. Soon there would be wine and cheese for everyone. They were expecting a king that would make their lives easier and that would put their nation back on top. Now, this may sound ridiculous to many of us, but I just want to take a moment and ask ourselves this same question. What type of king are we looking for? And church, if I'm honest with you, 
the king I want is not too different from that of the people of Galilee. I want a king that will come and make my life more comfortable and easy. I want a king that will give me all I want and need. I want a king who doesn't ask too much of me as his subject. I love how Pastor A. Carson describes what we want in Jesus. He says this, I would like to buy about $3 worth of Jesus, please. Not too much, just enough to make me happy, but not so much that I get addicted. I don't want so much Jesus that I learn to really hate covetousness and lust. I certainly don't want so much that I start to love my enemies and cherish self-denial and contemplate missionary service. I want ecstasy, not repentance. I want transcendence, not transformation. I would like to buy about $3 worth of Jesus, please. To be honest, church, I more often than not want $3 worth of Jesus. I just want a little bit of him, just enough of him that he benefits me and makes my life a little bit easier. But there are a few major problems with this approach to Christ, with this approach to Jesus. And the first problem is that Jesus, he's not a means to an end. He is the end in and of himself. He's not a means to an end. And if you seek him as a means to an end, what you're going to find is you'll be exhausted and spiritually depleted. And the second problem with this approach to Christ is that God's desire is not to make us happy. His desire is to make us holy. So what's the antidote then to this king that we want? Well, the antidote to this king that we want is the king that we need. It's the king we need. So let's take a look at this truth in Scripture, that Jesus, he is the antidote because he is not the king we want. He's the king we need. Starting in verse 16, it says this, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. They got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So Jesus has just walked away from being made king. He's just shattered the disciples' expectations that he would come to bring physical freedom for the people of Israel. And what does he do next? Uh, well, he does something really simple and easy that any king can do. He just walks on water and calms a storm and supernaturally teleports the disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. It's like, what are you doing, Jesus? What are you doing here? I mean, is he playing a prank on the disciples? Is he showing off that he is some type of superhero? No. He's not doing any of that. What he's doing is he's demonstrating that he is much more than any earthly king could ever be. 
and that he is not necessarily the king that we want, but he is the king that we need. Friends, I don't care how powerful the king he is, whether he's Cyrus the Great or Charlemagne. No matter how powerful he is, he ain't walking on water and calming a storm. You see, what Jesus is revealing in this moment to the disciples and to us is that he is the king of kings, that he is fully God. And this is why Jesus is so good, because we needed a king who was fully God. We didn't need a king who was going to cut taxes or build a wall or provide universal health care. No, we needed a king that was going to do the unthinkable. We needed a king that was going to make us right with God the Father. And that's exactly what Jesus came to do. So, okay, pastor, why do I need to be made right with God the Father? Why do I need to be made right with him? I mean, I think I'm doing pretty good in life. There's a lot of people that are worse than me. Well, Scripture teaches that we, by nature, are not right with God because of sin. You see, because of sin, there is a wall between us and God the Father. And you don't have to look too far to see this wall. All I have to do is look in the mirror. Friends, I can't even live up to the standards I set for myself, let alone God's perfect standard. Romans 3.23 puts it this way. It says, for we all have sinned and fall short of God's glorious standard. You see, there's a problem with our relationship with God the Father. And the problem is on us. So that's the bad news. But what's the good news? Well, the good news is that Jesus, because he is fully God and fully man, he made us right with God the Father. You see, even though the broken relationship with God is on us, the solution is on Jesus. And that's what Romans 3.25 says. It says, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. So how, how then did Jesus make us right with God the Father? Well, that's where we get to see the true nature of the best king in history, friends. In Philippians chapter 2, Paul describes what the King of kings and Lord of lords did for us. He says this in Philippians 2.6, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Paul writes this and he says, the king of kings, friends, he became small. He stepped off of the rightful throne in heaven to be born a servant. And he didn't stop there. He humbled himself even more to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, friends, God in his sovereignty and in his love, he knew that no matter how hard we try to humble ourselves, we are too prideful. We cannot humble ourselves fully. So God, instead of humbling us, he did the unthinkable. He humbled himself in our place. 
Friends, he was great and he became small. So that you and I, if we admit that we are small, that we are sinners in need of grace, that we can have a name that can last forever. King Jesus, he lost everything. He is the true king of kings. And at the cross, he exchanged his robe of glory for our robe of shame. At the cross, he exchanged his crown of glory for a crown of thorns so that we might be brought into the family of God. The past few weeks, I've been doing some reading, and I'm reading a book titled Friends Divided. And it's about this tenuous relationship between Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. And what I'm struck by is what John Adams, the second president of the United States, a Federalist, has to say about government. So he took Plato's Republic, which uh, Plato put forward five types of government, and Adams, he boiled it down, he simplified it to three different types of government. Adams says, in the end, there's three governments. A kingdom with a king, an aristocracy where the wealthy and influential rule, and a republic where the people rule. And John Adams, the second president of the United States, says that by far the best government is a kingdom with a benevolent king. Friends, we have the most benevolent king there has ever been or ever will be. A much better king than we could ever ask for. A king that doesn't just give us physical freedom, but he gives us spiritual freedom. Friends, we have not the king that we want, but the king that we need. This is who Jesus is. Thanks be to God.